Mm. That was amazing. Amen. I needed that this morning. Amen. Amen. There's, you know, there's so much amazing, so many amazing blessings that come from gathering with God's people. Um, for those that are watching online, obviously we understand, but we pray that it's an encouragement to you as well. But um, when we can gather together, not just for, um, you know, someone told me here recently, they said, man, I, I miss the hugs. You know, I miss the, just the connection of the people. That's an amazing blessing. But man, as Pastor Greg prayed, when we lift up our voices to the undefeated one, to the one that sits on his throne, unshaken, unmovable, amen, nothing shakes or rattles our Savior. And we lift up our voice as the body of, of, of Christ, as the, as the church, man, it, just, it, should, it should move us to move from fear to trust and to know God is in control. And so this morning, I just, man, I just really, really, really enjoyed. It's not about our enjoyment of it, but I did enjoy the worship of, of our Savior this morning. And let me just encourage you, that worship doesn't stop now that the music has stopped, right? We're getting into his word, and we're going to continue to worship him. This is another way we worship him. The offering, we worship him. Prayer, we worship him. Music and preaching and teaching. By the way, the application of God's word into our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit is an act of worship. When I allow the Holy Spirit to work in my life in a way to affirm something in my heart and mind, and then I say, God, I want to live this out for your glory. Man, he's worshiped in that. And so open your Bibles this morning. We're going to get there in just a few minutes um, to actually the book of Revelation. And I know whenever somebody turns to the book of Revelation, there's these little hairs on the back of your head that stand up or back of your neck. And, um, but don't fear. Okay, we'll be fine. Uh, Revelation chapter Two, Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to continue in our little mini-series we started last week. And before we get into that, um, I do want to share just two quick announcements I forgot to make. Hard to believe, I know. I always remember everything. So I know you're sitting there like, he forgot something. I can't imagine that would ever happen. Um, we want to remind you, don't forget um, the uh, clothing drive for kids in distress. Uh, the box is right out here in the lobby. That's still going on to the end of the month. So if you have anything you'd like to bring, um, jackets, gently used, like winter coats, uh, hats, gloves, all those kind of things. Boots, if you'd like to bring boots and donate those. We ask that those are brand new. Uh, don't use or don't bring used or gently used boots. Um, but anything like that for children, ages, or sizes, we would love to have you be a part of that. And then also want to let you know something that was announced a couple weeks ago. Um, if you are interested in, in, in being a part of the music ministry here at North Goodland, whether that's singing solos, whether it's playing an instrument, whatever it might be, um, if you feel like you want to be a part of something like that, uh, I know Pastor Keith and the, and the praise team would love to get to know you and hear that desire. And so if you want to be a part of that, all you got to do is just kind of come out um, tonight at 430. They're having practice. And so you come out at 430 and just honestly, maybe you want to sit in for a little while. Maybe you just want to come and watch and just see what the what it looks like. Um, it is not an obligation just because you come, you have to join. Um, it's not like, you know, the mafia or something like that. I mean, you can get out if you want to get out. That's the point we're making. Um, but if you want to be a part of something like that, you want to use your, your gifts and talents for the Lord that way, um, come on out this afternoon, 4.30. Uh, these guys would love to meet you and talk to you and get to know more about what your desire is. Um, and again, if it's singing or if it's playing an instrument or, or whatnot, um, we would love to have you be a part of of our music ministry here. And so last week, uh, we started talking about this idea of first things first, first things first. And I did it last week. We're going to do it again. I want you to look at the person next to you. 
Okay, get your, if there's no one next to you, I apologize. You should just talk across the aisle, I guess. Look at the person next to you and say, first things first. Okay, there we go. Now, last week I had you say it to the other person on the other side. So we're going to do that again, too. So those of you that are by yourself or whatever, go ahead and say it. There you go. Okay. You guys just take ownership of that. I wasn't even ready for you to say it, and you just jumped into it. It's great. First things first. And we talked about what does that look like. We discovered last week that God has set forth a principle in his word. And understand, in God's word, there are passages you will read that are principles and they're pattern passages. At least that's kind of how I call them. Principle passages, pattern passages. And what do I mean by that is a principle passage is we take the, 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 the lesson, the key, the, the heart of the passage, the, the idea of the passage, and we take that, and that's what we apply moving forward. But we don't necessarily maybe take it as a pattern. We don't repeat necessarily what it lays Fourth, okay, for example, there were things that were written specifically to the nation of Israel that don't apply to us today as followers of Christ. They're not specifically because they were written to a specific group of people in a specific place at a specific time for specific reasons. So we don't follow the pattern of that necessarily, but we do take the principle of that passage. And through God's word, we see a principle of putting God first. It takes many different forms in scripture. And we want to take the principle of what we read way back in Exodus, the idea of what we've been talking about there, and apply that moving forward. And a pattern passage, just so we can kind of finish out that thought, a pattern passage is exactly that. We read the passage, and we do it the same way today. And I'll give you an example of this. Uh, baptism in the New Testament. Uh, baptism in the New Testament is done by what we call immersion. That means we dunk under the water and come out of the water. That's how they baptize the New Testament. That's how we baptize today. That's a pattern passage. We follow that exactly. Okay. Um, so that's the difference there. So when we say there's a principle all throughout God's word, the principle of first fruits or putting God first, giving God our first and our best, takes many forms, okay? In the Old Testament, it talks about sacrificing the first lamb, right? We obviously aren't talking about bringing in a lamb. Last week, we mentioned this. Please don't bring your lambs in, okay? We don't want to get stuff all over the carpet, okay? It'd be gross. But we understand that we don't necessarily follow that exact pattern. We don't bring in a firstborn lamb, slit its throat, and offer it to God as a sacrifice. That's, we don't have to do that. But the principle of giving God our first is what we're looking at. So as we continue to, to look into this, we discovered last week that we put God first in our lives because he is worthy of first place in our lives. He is worthy of first place because he is Lord of all and victorious over all. Now, I just want to remind you, he is Lord of all, all the time, and he is victorious over all, all the time. Nothing changes that. He never ceases to be Lord of all, and his victory will always remain. He has conquered sin and death and hell, and the followers of Christ have trusted in Christ. We have that same guarantee and hope we'll see him one day. We don't have to fear. He is victorious over all. He is Lord over all. And because of that, we put him in first place in our lives. As we mentioned last week, I truly believe that when God is first in your life, all things will fall into order. When God is not first in your life, nothing will be in order. Our lives being in order does, before God does not mean no trials. Does not mean that everything will be perfect. Does not mean no tribulations. But when we put God first in our lives, he will strengthen us 
to give us the patience or endurance, the Bible says, to walk through whatever lies ahead. See, putting God first in our lives doesn't remove, doesn't mean it's a perfect world all of a sudden and everything's always perfect and nothing bad ever happens. It's saying, no, I put God first in my life so that no matter what happens in this life, in my circumstances, God is still first. He'll strengthen me to get me through. Now, sometimes God doesn't get us through. He takes us home in the midst of the trial. But sometimes he delivers us before the trial. Sometimes he walks with us through the trial with the example of the three Hebrew teens that were literally thrown into a fiery furnace. So no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, if I put God first, he's going to get me through either by taking me home or enduring with me through the trial. This is the idea of putting our lives in order. Basically, we put God first and everything will fall into place. Our priorities will begin to line up. And when you put God first, you put yourself last. I've seen that in my own life. The more I desire to put God first, the more I realized how much I was putting myself above other things of God. Now, I'm not talking about having time for yourself and, and you know, taking time to relax. We're going to get into that. But when we put God first, we start to realize, man, there's other people around me that are in need. And how can I be a blessing to them? All of a sudden, it's not about my convenience, number one. It's about others right? Loving God with all of me and love my neighbor as myself. So we see this dynamic unfolding the more we put God first. So this morning, as we continue this series, I want us to pick up kind of where we left off at the end of the message last week, which was where I gave you a challenge. And the challenge was pretty simple. I asked you to think through, not just in the general sense of God, I put you first in my life, period, which is great. We should do that. But how can we practically apply that to our lives? Meaning, what specific area do you desire? Or maybe did you pray about this last week? God, I'm asking you to be first in my life in this specific way. Yes, Lord of my whole life. I pray that's true. But Lord, in this specific way, this week, be Lord of my life. And so what I want to do this morning is I'm going to kind of give you four practical areas of our life that we can show and display not only to ourselves, not only to God as an act of worship, but even to others, that God is actually first in these areas. But before we get into those four areas, I want to lay a foundation for us, okay? So we're going to lay a foundation, and then we're going to build on that. But we have to make sure the foundation is secure, because if we get the foundation wrong, anything we build on top of that isn't going to be solid, right? It's just like a home or anything else. And so I want to be careful here, because when I give you these four things, what some believers will tend to do, in an effort to be earnest and to be dedicated and committed, we'll elevate the things we do for God over the relationship we have with God. And so we have to lay a foundation of relationship, which leads to surrender in these areas. Okay. So Revelation chapter two and verse one. Remember, it is Revelation, not Revelations. Okay. It's just one Revelation. Okay. But that's just neither here nor there, I guess. Um, I just always find it a little bit like I was in the book of Revelations this morning. Well, that's not in the Bible, so I don't know what book you were in. But anyway, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. It's like when people say, what is it, Illinois? How do they say that wrong? Illinois, Illinois. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's always funny that way. Anyway, okay. That's just how my brain works, guys. That's just how my brain works. I just jump around like that. Um, Imagine being married to me. Sandra sometimes would look at me like, what, what, how did we get here? And I'm like, I don't know. It's always an adventure. Okay, chapter 2, verse 1. This is an amazing, amazing passage. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, 
writes, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to this church. And how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And has borne and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Verse 4. This is where the, the, the feel of the, the letter, if you will, or the message to this church changes. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Verse 5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of this place, except thou repent. Let's pray and ask God to affirm these things in our hearts and minds. Father, we ask that you would, that as only you can, that you would affirm these truths, that we would understand them, that we would apply them, we would live differently because of them. Father, I pray that as we are gathered together as the body of Christ, for those that are here physically, for those that are watching online, I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone that is listening to this message that doesn't know Christ, maybe they've gone to church their whole lives. Maybe they've been a really good person and do really good things. They serve the community. They give to the poor. They volunteer. Maybe they've read the Bible. Maybe they give tithe checks to churches. Maybe they've been baptized. But, Lord, if they don't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, all of that gains them no merit with you. There's no forgiving power in those things. But Lord, when we trust in you and in you alone, in the finished work of the cross, that you came to this world, lived a sinless life, died on a sinner's cross, was buried and rose again on the third day before ascending into heaven where you're seated on the right hand of the throne of the Father. You did all of that, that we, that I, Lord, when I was 16 years old and I just cried out to you and I said, Lord, forgive me, I have sinned. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I ask that you would save me and I pray that you'd be the Lord of my life. Such a simple prayer, Lord. But when we repent of our sins and turn to you and trust in you, you will save us and you will redeem us and call us your sons and daughters and set us for your heaven, not because of what we can do for you, but because of what you've already done for us. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone that is listening to this message that has never made that decision for themselves, I pray that they would not think that they're just good enough, that they've done enough good, but they would realize that we can, we can never do enough, that our sin is great, and the only way to have forgiveness of sin is to receive the amazing grace you offer. So, Father, I pray that if there's anyone that needs to to be saved today, to receive Christ, to repent of their sin and trust in you for eternal life. I pray they'd make that decision before it's everlasting too late because really, Lord, the truth is when we leave this world, the decision's already been made. And when I leave this world, I can't choose then whether I'll go to heaven or hell. You've given me breath in my lungs and a time to repent. You desire that all would come to repentance, but you offer it as a choice that we must make. And so I pray, Father, if there's anyone here or watching online that needs to be needs to be saved, Lord. I pray that they would make that decision today. Know that you love them so much that they can choose to receive Christ. 
Father, go before us during this message and help us to understand all that you have for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Ephesians chapter 2, we read this letter or the message to the church at Ephesus. We're not going to get into the entire content of the passage. I encourage you to read it, but I want to kind of walk this out a little bit here. And what do we see happening in this church? To be honest, this is a powerful word of encouragement and a challenge to the church at Ephesus. This is the same church that received the letter or the book of Ephesians. In the New Testament, we read the book of Ephesians. This is the same church. Sometime later, they've received this letter. And what's amazing is they are actually a good church. I mean, when you read the first couple of verses here, verses 2 and 3, this is a good church, right? Like many of you would hear of this church in the community and go, I could join that church. That's a, that's a good church. They're really good people. And they really stand for truth. They really stand for God's word. They teach truth. They really make sure that those, when it says that those that claim to be apostles, but they test them, it doesn't mean that they like grill them for hours with theological questions, right? It means they observe them. They watch them. They listen to them. They take what they're saying and compare it to God's word and go, you're contrary to God's word. Therefore, you're not a real apostle. You're not a real prophet. I mean, they're, they're vetting people before they can even preach and teach. They're making sure that what's going out of that church is truth. This is all good things. This is a, a good, strong church. And in fact, they had amazing leadership in their church. They had a great heritage of leadership. Just think about this for a second. You got the Apostle Paul, okay? Good leader, bad leader, the Apostle Paul. What do you think? I'd say a good leader, yeah, you know, established, you know, a few dozen churches in the, in the known world, traveled about 10,000 miles preaching the gospel, wrote a third of the New Testament. I'd say he was a good leader. Then you've got Timothy. As far as we know of Timothy, good leader, bad leader? Good leader, right? Young Timothy that was passionate for the things of God, that was equipped and encouraged by Paul to do the work of ministry. We see Timothy was a, was a great pastor, a great preacher, great leader. The apostle John also had some time in the church of Ephesus, ministering and encouraging the church. Apostle John, good or bad leader? Good leader, as far as we know. I mean, wrote the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, right? Now, could you imagine a church with that on their pastor or leader role? Paul, Timothy, Apostle John. What would you think that church would be like? On fire, amazing, right? And guess what? They did kind of have some fire, right? I mean, the Apostle John, when you read the Gospel of John or 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he's not this love, hippie, ooh, man, God is love guy that we kind of perceive him to be very effeminate. He was very passionate about the love of God, okay? Which we all should be because it's the love of God that saved us, amen? So we don't like downplay that, but he was also all about the truth of God's word. And he said, look, this is truth. This is a lie. This is light. This is dark. That it just was one way or the other. It was no grayer of a John. So when you see this church having this passion to stand on the truth of God's word, we're not surprised by that because look at who their leadership was. Paul was passionate to preach the truth. Timothy was passionate to preach the truth. I mean, Paul tells Timothy, preach doctrine, teach the truth of doctrine, teach and instruct faithful men who will in turn teach others also. We see this heritage of leadership. It's a good church, but something happened in the church. Something changed in the church. To understand kind of what's going on here, you need to take a step back and look at the city of Ephesus. I'm not going to go into all the historical applications, but the city of Ephesus has actually become, at this point, a place of great idolatry, false teaching, 
right? The culture is, is not a very pleasant or happy or good culture. Tons of sin and depravity going on all around the church. And I won't get into details, but one of the, uh, one of the temples there, they had actual temple prostitutes that worked for the temple that were go out down into the marketplace and draw people back in. And this is similar to what we see in Corinth, in the church of Corinth. So the church of Ephesus is in a city, in a location that once was this booming commerce, this place of commerce, and now it's kind of devolved into not such a great place. And so you can understand when the church is standing against truth, standing against lies and preaching truth. And, and there's a phrase here. It actually says in verse 3, uh, it says here, And thou hast born and hast patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. So they've not given up. They've not quit. That's the key. They're not fainted. So this church is strong in resolve. We're going to endure. We're going to keep pushing ahead. We're not going to let anything that's happening around us stop us from being the church that God has called us to be. Man, what a great lesson for us every single day. By the way, that's not a new lesson. When was this written? Roughly 98 AD. So maybe some of the things we see around us in the world, they're... They didn't just start yesterday, right? Man, the world's been a very fallen, dark place since the Garden of Eden and the fall of man. So here, this church has to make a choice. Are we going to faint? Are we going to quit? Are we going to stay the course? Man, they're going to stay the course. And God is encouraging them. Could you imagine hearing these words from Jesus Christ to North Goodland? If Jesus wrote us a letter and said, listen, I've heard of you. I know of you. I mean, of course, he knows of us. We're his children. But I mean, just to... I know of what you've done for me. By the way, one day we will hear those words. One day he'll say to us, enter into the joy of the Lord. Right? Thou good and faithful servant, enter in. Now, it's not salvation-based. We don't work for him to stay saved. But it's an amazing gift that by the grace of God, because we work for the glory of God, by the strength of God that he gives us, we will stand before him and we'll be rewarded for the things we do for God. Now, I believe we'll give all those rewards right back (laughs) and just an act of just sheer worship and say, God, no, it wasn't me. It was you. How could I be blessed for something you did through me? But here we're going to see, we're going to hear these words from the Lord and be encouraged and and rewarded. But what does he say here in this passage? He actually says, and you're doing a lot of great things. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. See, it's amazing. They're this great, strong, good church, but something happened along the way where they got more focused on the doing for God than the relationship with God. Now, I'm not saying that every single Christian in the church of Ephesus didn't have a relationship with Christ. I don't know that. But as far as the church as a whole, this seems to be something that the church struggled with. The Lord warns them and and challenges them that they have left their first love. And they need to, quote, do the first works. So you've left your first love. You need to do the first works. Now, I'm going to give you a little warning here before we continue to break this down. Um, I already kind of prepared that this may be a two-weeker. And someone was giving me a hard time in the sound booth this morning about that. And someone said to me, Can, I, I would be interested to see if you could just do one sermon on its own, stand alone, without extending it out. And I said, I've done that. Thank you very much. It's just not very often I do that, but I can do it. But I wrote this message this morning, and I wanted to spend some time here and talking about Ephesians or the Church of Ephesus. We're going to get into a couple practical ways, but we may have to extend this to next week just so you know. But I really want to spend some time understanding this church and this foundation we must lay. So what are the first 
works. What is our first love? I love what Warren Worsby says about this phrase. And I jotted this down in my notes. Listen to what Worsby says. What is first love? It is devotion to Christ. It is the devotion to Christ. So often characterizes the new believer. Fervent, personal, uninhibited, excited, and openly displayed. I think that's a really fair, good way to describe that early new believer love for Christ. It's, it's passionate. It's personal. It's fervent. Right? It's exciting. It's openly displayed. When we're new believers, we are just supernaturally ready to tell everyone about what we've discovered. It seems as we've been Christians longer, that's what starts to wane. It used to be when we were first saved, we'd tell anybody about Jesus. The longer we're saved and the longer we're in this world, we start going, oh, mm, I don't know. And we need to go back maybe just a little bit to some of that early first love. But he goes on to say this. Um, he says, it is the honeymoon love of a husband and wife. A honeymoon love of a husband and wife. He references Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 in relation to that idea. He says this, while it is true that mature and married love deepens and grows richer, it is also true that it should never lose the excitement and wonder of those honeymoon days. And I love that. What is first love? He says, it is that honeymoon love that a husband and wife have when they're newly married. We actually have a phrase for this, right? The honeymoon period. Right? Those first six months to a year when everything is perfect before you realize your husband doesn't pick anything up or your wife tends to get excited about some things. No specifics, no details. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm just saying. That honeymoon phase when everything is just good, right? Like you walk in the bedroom and there's your husband's underwear. You're like, oh, that guy. <laughs> that silly guy. Two years later, it's like, pick up the underwear, Right? It, that honeymoon phase is that new, it's just everything's new and exciting. And it's just, man, that's why I love the Bible says we need to return to our first love. Now, I think there's two ways to look at this. It's first in the sense that it was new to us when we found Christ. It was a new thing, right? So it was the first love we had for Christ and from Christ. So there's an aspect of that use of the word first there. But I also believe that it's meant to be used as a first in priority love. It's not just first, oh man, the first time I fell in love with Jesus Christ, when I knew he, he died on the cross for me and I gave my life to him and it was just so exciting and passionate and wonderful. There's an idea of that first newness, but I also believe it's first in position. Man, we should love the Lord Jesus Christ more than we love anything else and anyone else. It's hard for us to understand sometimes. It's also harder for us to apply. Jesus says in the Gospels, if you love your mother, father, brother, sister more than you love me, you cannot be my disciple. Man, it's hard for us to hear that. And it's not saying we hate our family and love Christ. It's no, we love our family, but we love Jesus more. See, I love my wife and I love my boys, but I love Jesus more than I love them. Now, practically, I struggle with displaying that. I pray that it's going to continue to be true, but, but I'm just telling you, that's what we're talking about here. And we need to constantly be evaluating our hearts, constantly evaluating. Does he really hold first position? Do I love him more than anything else? Do I love him more than I love my own comfort? 
Do I love him more than I love my own security and safety? Well, what are you talking about? These missionaries that surrender to go overseas and put their lives directly in risk of losing them for the glory of God. You know why they do those things? Not because they're super Christians or super abnormal Christians. They're being Christians. You know what they're doing? They're going, listen, God has called me to this area. Yes, it's dangerous. I could lose my life doing this. But I love him so much more than I love my own life. I've told you guys before about my friend Stephen, who's a pastor in Israel. And I remember telling him when he was graduating college, I said, dude, you could plant a church in America and have thousands in attendance. I mean, this guy was an amazing follower of Christ, passionate to share Christ. And he said, no, God's not called me to stay here. God's called me to go home and win my people to Jesus. You know, the place where his church was firebombed, he was stabbed, his father was shot. I mean, this man wakes up every morning, hugs his kids and his wife, may never see them again, and goes to the church. And he tells me when I met him a few years back after not seeing him for a while, he said, make sure you find joy in your ministry. Everything you do for the Lord should bring joy. And see, you know why he does that? Not because he's robo-Christian or super-Christian, but because he says, man, I love Jesus more than I love my own life. So I will gladly lay that down if he calls me here. Now, you may not be called to go to Iraq or Iran or Israel. You may not be called to, do, to go to those places. That's fine. I'm not saying we all have to go over there. You may not be called to go to a place that's directly going to risk your life. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, are we willing to lay down our lives, whether he calls us to go witness to our coworker or to go overseas? Are we willing to love him enough to say, he's number one in my life. I don't care what it costs me. The church of Ephesus had such a passion for working for God, but they had drifted in their relationship with God. Charles Stanley says this. So I was studying through this. I came across this, and I love this. He says, God created us for an intimate relationship with himself, and developing that relationship must always remain our top priority. Working for God must never replace loving God. Developing that relationship is a top priority for the follower of Christ. We must never replace working for God with loving God. See, this is a great church at the church of Ephesus. Man, they are the church, the example church, right? Like they're just doing all the right things. On the surface, everything looked great. Their testimony in the community. I mean, imagine their testimony in the community. You think the people in the community thought this was a good church? Yeah. They probably hated this church because they stood against things that they thought, you know, that's sin and that's sin. And well, that's, we don't like that. But I guarantee you, the people in the community thought this is a good church. But yet in the church, Jesus looks into the hearts and the minds of the followers of Christ and says, you've drifted. You've drifted. Yeah, you look really Christian on the outside and you're saying all the right things and you're putting all the right things out there. That's great. But man, where's that heart? Where's that love? And so this is the foundation. Everything else we're going to talk about this morning and moving forward has to be built on this foundation that we understand that our relationship with Christ is first and everything else flows out of that. Our relationship with Christ, a love for him first above all else, will put 
him in a position in our lives where now everything flows out of this relationship and now we won't drift into legalism where we just check the box but there's no heart. We won't drift away from serving him because when we love him first, we'll desire to serve our community, serve our neighbor, serve our church. See, if you, if you remove the love of Christ as first place in your life, you drift away from that foundation and you're either over here being a legalist, beating people up with truth, and that's great. You've convinced them they're horrible sinners, but you've not talked of grace. You've not talked of forgiveness. You've not talked of redemption. So what they do is they put a suit on, they go to church and they feel really bad, but they're drifted and they're distant and they're going to burn and go to hell. But good job. You've convinced them they're a horrible sinner. You drift over here, you go, man, God is love, 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 God is love. They know God is love, and they're good with that, but they've never had to deal with their sin. They never repented of their sin. They never turned from their sin, so they're still just as lost as the group over here. But man, when I put the love of Christ first in my life, and I understand that he is number one, and I understand he's number one because he's worthy then I, everything else will flow out of that. And understanding that I repent of my sins, I turn from my sins, and I trust in Christ for salvation, and I can do that because he loves me and showed his grace to me. And that grace does not stop once I'm saved. It continues to sustain me through every moment of my life. Because I, because I may fall one day, you will fall one day into a sinful decision, whether it's a thought, a word, an action. And we can't sit there and go, oh, God doesn't love me anymore. God is mad at me. No, if we remember, we go back, no, no, no. He's my first love. He loved me before I even loved him. And he has saved me because he is good. So I turn from the sin. I I come back to you, Lord Jesus. You know what's amazing about Revelation 2? How he ends verse 5. He says at the end, except thou repent. Verse 5, at the very beginning. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent. You know what? God is always crying out to us as followers of Christ when we live this life and we drift into a wrong way of thinking, a wrong way to living. He's going, would you just repent? Just turn back. Just turn back. Just turn back. And he gives us the grace and the strength to do that. So now that we understand our foundation is growing in a loving relationship with Christ. That's our foundation. I have Christ as my Savior. I've received him because he's lovingly and graciously offered it to me. Now out of that, I'm growing in that relationship. And by the way, here's another thing I want to remind you of. Don't beat yourself up because you're not growing as fast as someone else. Or because you're not as far down the road as you think you should be. So we do this all the time. We play the comparison game. I look at so-and-so. Oh, man, they're so mature. They're so close to the Lord. Man, I should be there. And God is going, would you stop comparing yourself and let me just have a relationship with you? Let's you and I just spend some time together and let me grow you. Don't worry about anyone else. That's my problem. Let me grow you. I love that idea that God wants to be as unique with you as he is with others. And so let's let him. But we understand our foundation is growing in a loving relationship with Christ. That it is truly first place. So we get that. Now I want to walk through some practical areas that we can display or make or place God first in our lives. Now, again, this is not to take the place of the relationship. It's merely to reflect the relationship. So making God first, and I'm going to give you four things. We'll probably get through two of them before we run out of time this morning, and we'll give you the next two next week. But the first two things we want to look at, number one, making God first in my time. Making God first in my time. I want to look at a very familiar passage. 
Romans chapter 12. This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. It's one of the clearest directions, too, as a calling on the follower of Christ. Romans chapter 12. So making God first in my time. This is how we live, how we use the time we've been given. So Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, Romans 12, 1, by the mercies of God. So again, remember the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? The mercy God has given us, which involves what? The gospel. He's speaking to believers. Hey, listen, you've received the mercies of God as understanding. You've already received those out of that says here that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How does God call the believer, the follower of Christ, to, to live this life? How, are, how have we been called to make God first in our time? Let me just say this. Time is the most valuable thing you've been given. Time is the most valuable gift you've been given. And here's why. It's limited. We don't know how much of it we have, right? And once we've used it, we can't replace it. It's the most valuable gift you've been given. Once you use it, you can't replace it, right? The last hour you've been in church, you can't leave church and go, okay, let me get that hour back. It's gone. We've, we've already spent that time. And we'll talk about it in a minute here. I pray that you didn't just spend it. I pray that you invested it. But time is the most valuable gift we've been given. And by the way, time is a gift. Amen. God has graciously given us a set number of days. And we don't know how many days we have, but we know we've been given today. And so what do we do? We show him first place in our lives today. How do I do that? By living as a sacrifice. How do I live as a sacrifice? means I put him first and whatever he wants, he gets. He's, he's number one in my life. He says, be not conformed to this world and be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. Conforming to the world has nothing to do with what you put on clothing-wise, okay? Doesn't matter, those kind of things, these surface things we've made it about. It's a heart issue and it's a mind issue. It's saying, I'm not going to think like the world thinks. What does that mean? I'm not going to be consumed with the things the world's consumed with. What's the, con- the world consumed with? The lust of the eyes, the lust of flesh, and the pride of life. That's what the world is driven by. But I, as a follower of Christ, because I've sacrificed my life to God, I'm not going to be consumed with those things. I'm not going to wake up in the morning and be driven with the same things that the world is driven with. I'm going to be driven with the love, the passion, the calling of God over my life. So here we understand we lay down our lives And then we pray, God, how would you have me use my time today? How would you have me to use this time that you've given me? I've heard it said, a good question to ask ourselves is, are we spending our time or investing our time? Are we spending our time or investing our time? The average person lives 27,375 days. The average person lives 27,375 days. Now, that may seem like a giant amount of days. That's a crazy amount of days. Some of us, as if we've gotten older, we start going, well, I've lived this many days. It means I only got X number of days roughly left, right? We start doing that math in our head. 
See, that's the key is, man, we have to start thinking. We don't beat ourselves up for yesterday. We go, God, you've blessed me with today. How can I invest in today? How can I make a difference today? This doesn't mean, we talk about this idea of investing our time and working for God. It doesn't mean we don't take vacations, right? It doesn't mean we don't take a a day of rest and relaxation. The Bible is pretty clear about that. We need that day. Uh, Maybe for some of you, it's... uh, not a Sunday. Maybe it's a Saturday. Maybe whatever your weekend looks like. I don't know how you do it. It doesn't mean we don't take time to relax. By the way, one of the best ways to invest time with your family, specifically your kids, is to go on vacation with them. I'm not talking about spending a ton of money. It doesn't have to be like that. Just getting away for a weekend with your kids or your wife or your family. Man, the the memories you can make, the time you can invest in them, the conversations you can have when you get away from the hustle and bustle of every day is what we're getting at. And I always remember a few years ago, we went to a water park up in Mount Pleasant. And we were up there and we had this hotel room that had the two beds, you know, and they had these pillows that were like kind of like long tubular kind of pillows. Not tubular, like cool, like the shape, okay? Um, okay, some of you didn't get that. But that's okay. Ninja Turtles, yes! That's exactly what I was... Okay, Sorry. We just had a moment there, Lynn. You know, it was great. Okay. But when you think about this idea, so we had these, these pillows, right? Now it's me, Josiah, Anthony, and Sandra. This is a couple years ago, so the boys were a little younger. And I remember, I don't know how it even started. All of a sudden, those pillows became like lightsabers. And we just started wailing on each other with these things, like just me and the boys and just having fun. And then we made like a bridge across the two beds. You know what I mean? And then the kids are trying to crawl under there while the other one's trying to jump on the top of it and crush them and all this stuff. Just very good guy fun, right? Like, I don't know. As I'm telling this story, I'm like, there was a lot of violence involved in this. Like, wow, I don't remember all that. But, but you know what's funny is Sandra's over here and she took a picture of it. And she was, I think she put something online that said like, help, I'm trapped in a hotel room with three boys and pillows that look like swords or something, you know? And. But you know what's funny? We, we talk about that every now and then, and it's just so cool to have that memory. And you might think, but that's just a silly thing. But we got to laugh and have some fun. See, I, I think that's also how we can invest our time in other people's lives. Obviously, we invest time by, as followers of Christ by studying God's word. Of course, we need to study God's word. We invest time in prayer. We invest time in in attending or being a part of church services. We invest time by serving in the church, serving out of the church. Uh, You invest time, by the way, when you share Christ with your coworker. There's a great use of our time. Okay. Now, make sure, I've always said, make sure when you're sharing Christ with your coworker, you're not robbing your employer of their time that they're paying you for. You might say, what does that mean? If you're paid by the hour, and you're supposed to be doing this job, you don't stop for 40 minutes to take a break to talk to your coworker. Now, you might think, but I'm sharing Christ. That's great. But you're also a horrible testimony to your employer because you're just robbing them of their time. So what do you do? You say, I've only got five minutes. So you say to your coworker, hey, I'd love to talk with you on lunch. I'd love to talk to you before we leave today. Hey, can we get together and have coffee after work today? We try to figure out a way to set up that time so that we're honoring our employer Right? As followers, we should honor our employer and work for the pay that we've been paid to work. But we also can take time to say, let me use this five minutes real wisely. Let me use this half hour lunch real wisely. Now, it might mean you don't get as much of your food in your mouth as you want to, but man, you can invest in the other person's life by sharing Christ with them. See, investing our time takes a lot of different forms. Obviously, if I'm loving him first, I'm allowing him to guide me in all these things. So sometimes it's just fellowship. It's just talking and laughing 
Sometimes I think we could, we could do good to do some of that. Just to sit with someone and, how you doing? How, how, how's things going? And just have a conversation. It doesn't always have to be so serious sometimes. By the way, your kids sometimes just get on the floor and play with them. If they're real little, not they're like 30, that might be weird. But if they're like seven or five or something, you know. You, I mean, just listen. Do you know how many times that as a parent, there was times I didn't want to play whatever the kids were playing. Like, oh, yeah, it's time. I want to sit there and do this. But you know what? You do it. Why? Because you're investing in them, just spending time with them. Because here's the thing. When you spend time like that when they're young, when they get to be older, you pray that they will come back and want to spend time with you. And now you can have those really important conversations. You can have those real important kind of moments in your relationship with your kids or your family or friends or whatever it looks like. And so we can honestly invest every moment, not by necessarily working ourselves to death, but by looking at every moment and saying, God, how would you be glorified in this? What does Paul say? For whatsoever you eat, whatsoever you drink, for whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That means when you're resting and relaxing or when you're working or whatever it looks like, we do it for the glory of God. We can make the choice to show God is first in how we live this life by surrendering every one of those 27,375 days to him. So time is one way that we can make God first in our lives. And so that's one practical example. The second practical example I want to give you before we uh, dismiss here in a few minutes is our talents. Our talents. This is how we serve. How we serve. First Corinthians chapter 12. We're not going to read uh, the whole passage, but we're going to look at verse 4. Super simple verse, but just kind of summarizes it in a real simple way. So we make God first in our time, how we live our lives, how we're investing in other people's lives. Uh, one thing I'll add to that real quick while you're getting to First uh, Corinthians 12. Whenever I'm blessed to do a funeral and to speak at a funeral or a home going, one of the things I was, I heard this years ago, one of the things I've always tried to mention is that when you, when you think about a funeral or a home going, you think about the date of their birth and the date of their passing, and every tombstone has that on there, but in the middle there's a little hyphen. And I always try to remind people that they're sitting in that funeral home because of that hyphen, right? That represents the life that was lived. Now, some of our hyphens are shorter, some are longer. We don't know how long they're going to be. But that hyphen represents all the lives you've impacted, all the people you've touched, all the ways you've tried to make a difference. And I think it's an amazing reminder to think that, Lord, today, how am I living that hyphen? Am I being consumed by, by things that would distract and take away? Or am I living and investing in others in a way that would honor you, including myself? So how are we living that hyphen as a way to reflect he is first in our time? So in our talents, what do we mean by talents? This is how we serve, how we serve. First uh, Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. I want to touch on that diversities of gifts. There's different gifts that the spirit of God gives to the church. The Bible is clear that when we receive Christ, we receive a spiritual gift. Some would argue maybe two or even three spiritual gifts. Along with that gift, we also have human talents that are a gift to all mankind. So every human being on planet Earth has been given a talent by God, some talent of some degree. Uh, maybe it's in some way of athletics. Maybe it's some way of a intellect, right? I mean, you ever just meet someone that they're just so smart, and yet, like, they don't hardly have to study? Uh, anybody hate those kids in high school, by the way? Anybody? Okay. 
Um, you walk into the class, you're sweating because you've been studying for seven hours straight and praying for a C. This kid walks in, gets an A, just study. No, you just want to, for Jesus one time, right in the mouth and just praise God, right? But those are, that's, that's, that's something that God has given that individual. It's amazing. Uh, I've always said one of our missionaries, Brother C, Tim C, is an amazingly intelligent man. Just truly given a gift from God. His, his intelligence is an amazing gift. And he chose a long time ago to use that gift for the glory of God by working with missionaries where he develops solar power situations and things where they can use computers and refrigerators in the middle of a jungle. He outfits all of that and has done it for years where these missionaries can go in the middle of the jungle with no power source and get a little suitcase-sized thing in the mail, and boom, now you can run a laptop based on what he developed and created through New Tribes or Ethnos 360. It's just amazing how when God gives us those talents and those gifts, we have to make a choice. How am I going to use this for the glory of God? How has God gifted me, and how can I use this for the glory of God? We sometimes question if our gifts and talents are as important or as useful as someone else. However, you are gifted exactly how God designed You are gifted exactly as God designed, unique and with distinct purpose. I don't know who needs to hear this, but I feel like somebody needs to write that down, that you, you, and write it this way, I, I was gifted exactly as God designed with purpose. It's so true that we need to realize that we've been gifted exactly as God designed. Design. Some of you are amazing with children. You can just, and you just have a connection with kids. How can you use that to glorify God, to minister the grace of God to someone else? Some of you are very, very intelligent with money and finances. How can you use that for the glory of God? Some of you are, are just great with personalities. You can just, man, you can talk to anybody. You can just have a way of talking to people. When I see somebody that has that kind of personality, I instantly think, man, that could be an evangelist. Someone that can just share Christ with anyone. I've always said, Pastor Bob McDonald, who's gone home to be with the Lord, he had a way of even just walking on the street. People, we joked about people would fall at his feet and get saved. He wouldn't even say two words to him because he could just he could just say things in a way that you just I've never wow just connected with people. I Man, how has God gifted you? What gifts has God given you? And here's the thing: don't think your gift or talent isn't as good as someone else's. Because again, now we're comparing. Now we're thinking, I'm not as good as them. The question isn't, do I have the right gift or talent? The question is, am I using the gift or talent the Lord has given me for his purposes? It's not, do I have the right gift? Rather, it's, am I using the gift or talent God has given me for his purposes? How is God calling you to serve others, both in the church and outside the church? What is hindering you from submitting to that call and making God first? Again, it doesn't mean whether you're in the workforce, a doctor, lawyer, teacher, how is God going to use that to impact the world for Christ? If it's music, if you have the talent of music, are you serving with that talent? As we talked about, are, are, are you gifted with music, but yet maybe fearful? I'm not as good as someone. I mean, I don't play guitar as good as Jeff plays guitar right? I don't play this as good as so-and-so. I don't sing as good as so-and-so. Listen, that's the wrong question. That's the wrong approach. It's no, Lord, you've given me the gift, this gift or talent. Help me to serve. Now, again, 
we're not saying we can't grow in these things and get, you know, improve in our knowledge of these things, but it's saying, I'm just going to step out and start right now, no matter where I think my starting point is compared to someone else. I'm going to step out and I'm going to serve. If it's teaching, are you serving in that way? Are you using your gift of teaching? I mean, specifically, the Bible talks about the gift of teaching in regards to teaching the Word of God. We know that we have amazing teachers out in the secular world, uh, people that have impacted you through maybe college or school or whatever that are just great teachers. They can just take a topic and teach it to you. But when we talk about teaching as far as the Word of God, are we serving in opportunities to unfold God's Word? Do you? Let me ask you this way. When you read God's Word, do you find yourself starting to break apart the passage? Do you find yourself starting to make notes and think, man, this seems like this goes to this and goes to that and this connects to that and here's an application. If you find yourself doing that in your personal study time, maybe God is opening a door for teaching. One of the ways that I knew that I was called to preach, there was no baby angels that fell around me. There was no divine light. There was no burning bush, nothing like that. Okay. I think at 16, coming out of the city of Detroit, seeing those kind of things, I probably would have thought I took a bad something. I need to go, right? I'm, I'm on a bad trip, but but when you think about that, there was none of that, right? There was none of those things. What was it? I remember sitting in church and Pastor Tom was preaching and it was just like I was sitting there thinking, man, I would be reading along in the passage. And I remember thinking, so it was a couple times I was like, I think I would have said it like this. And I'm already thinking, how dare you question Pastor Tom Blount? No, no, it was, I was, he was right in what he was saying. But I found myself just thinking about different ways you could communicate it. And then it was all of a sudden just through that idea of just praying, God, what would you have me? Next thing I know, I was like, okay, maybe I'm supposed to preach. And I just stepped out. It wasn't, man, I was terrified to give my first sermon. I was terrified because I knew I didn't know as much of the people in the room knew. That's a scary thought. I want you to preach to this church of people where the average age is 50. As a 16-year-old kid, newly saved, about a year saved, barely know the Bible, go ahead and preach them a message. What? What? And I remember reading through a passage. Well, they, I'm sure they know that. I'm sure they know that. They've got to know this. They know that. But I'm telling you, we can't let fear stop us from putting God first and serving him in our talents and our gifts. And my life has been radically changed because I merely just said, with the great encouragement of those around me, okay, I guess I'll step out and do this. So what is it for you? Is it the gift of hospitality? Do you just find yourself desiring to serve others, to invite people over, to prepare meals for people, to just serve them in any way you can? Maybe you just get a great joy out of that. Like the idea of serving someone a meal just really encourages you, and you think, man, it would be a great blessing to them. Or going to someone's home and just doing laundry for them, just serving the physical needs of people that they have. Maybe it's a gift of hospitality that God has given you. What is it that you've been gifted? What talents have you been given? And are you willing and ready to put God first in those things. Maybe you would say, I've tried that. I've tried putting God first in those things. I've tried doing those things and it didn't work out. It didn't pan out. Then, then don't quit. Then pray for wisdom in what avenue that would take differently. Maybe you would come and pray this morning and say, God, I know you give me this gift and talent. I believe I'm using it for your glory. Help me to be consistent in this, to continue to do this. So whether it's our time, how are we investing our time? Maybe you would be here this morning and you'd say, man, I don't think I'm really investing my time. I think maybe I'm wasting a lot of time. Maybe, and by wasting it, I mean not putting God first in my time. Maybe you'd come and pray and say, God, help me to have wisdom in this. Maybe it's with your, ta your talents, your gifts. But ultimately, here's the real question. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ first in your life? 
Is he, is he number one in your life? I'm not talking about as far as salvation is concerned, but do you love Jesus Christ more than anything else? And I'll tell you what I heard a pastor say one time was, we can understand and, and realize our love for Jesus and how much I love Jesus based on how quickly I'm distracted from that love relationship. What is it that pulls me away from starting to doubt and question and get caught up in fear and worry? In Romans 12, I'm conforming my thinking to the thinking of the world. But if I love him first, then those things shouldn't shake me. Now they will because we're human beings. This is the whole point. We need to constantly be evaluating, do I really love him first? I can tell you that I've not always loved Jesus first. I can tell you that in ministry, I've not always loved Jesus first. I've loved ministry first. I've loved the church more than I loved him. I've loved my family more than I've loved him. I've loved myself more than I've loved him. So it's not, I'm not talking to you like I've got it all figured out, but it's a constant growing relationship. We're constantly evaluating. So if you find yourself where you would say, no, I don't think I love him first. I love this or that thing or career or hobby or person more, then maybe you'd come this morning and say, Lord, Lord, correct my heart. Help me to get back on track with where I need to be. Father, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for your love and grace in our lives. Father, in just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation where we're going to respond to what you've laid before us. Father, I'm so thankful for the attentiveness of this church this morning. They would come and hear from your word. And Lord, I pray that they've been challenged and encouraged from your word. I pray that they would know that you love them more than they can imagine. That, Father, we have been called as followers of Christ to love you, to put you first in our lives. And so, Father, I just ask, as only you can do it, would you work in the hearts and minds of these people that are here? Maybe they're doing everything great, standing up for the right things. They're, they're studying God's word. They're doing all the things that they should be doing as followers of Christ. They're, they're just... They're just doing these things consistently and faithfully. They're not quitting. And Lord, it's a praise. But Father, have they maybe drifted in putting you first in that first love? Has it become more about the doing than the relationship? Father, I pray that you would just work in all that. Give us wisdom and guidance and peace in that and what decisions we need to make that you would be glorified. Help us to use our time wisely to invest our time for your glory. And again, Lord, not saying we can't take time to rest and relax, but we need to make sure that we're just prayerfully considering how we can use this time for your glory and our gifts and talents. Lord, are we serving? Serving our community, serving our church, serving wherever you've placed us. For such a time as this, I believe you've called us. And so it helps us to reflect that in our lives. Father, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Would you stand to your feet this morning as the praise band leads us in a song of invitation? Uh, how would you respond this morning, whether they're in your seats or whether you want to come and pray? Whatever God is doing, are you putting God first? Not out of obligation or guilt, but because you love him more than anything else. Is he first in your life? Is he first in your time? Is he first in your talents and your gifts? Would you come and pray and ask God to give you wisdom in those things?